0: Philippians chapter 2. Well, as we've been working through the book of Philippians, I have told you that we, we have in front of us kind of a case study of a good church. Philippians, the, the church at Philippi, the Philippians were, were a church that was healthy, a church that was maturing, a, a church that was giving, a church that was moving in the right direction. The sort of church that you'd want to be a part of. And, and, it, and being a good church, it's, it's a church that's worth studying and it's worth emulating because it was healthy and maturing. It was alive. Now, one of the questions you might ask yourself is, yeah, but why would I want to study a church? Why do I need to study a church? I'm not a pastor. I, mean, I am, but you're not, right? So why would I need to study a church? Like I want to study my own spiritual life and that sort of thing, but a church, why do I need to study that? If you're not a pastor, is that even relevant for you? Well, the answer is yes, it is relevant, and yes, it does matter. It's important because the church is people. The church is people, all right? It's not an organization or a building. It is those things as well, but the church is God's people. It's a community of people. And times have changed since this was written 2,000 years ago but people haven't, all right? There's some things that are very different in our world today than the world of the people in Philippi 2,000 years ago. But you know what? There's a lot of things, especially in the way that we function as humans, that are identical, that are the same. People have not changed in many ways. And the church, the group of people, is meant to bring glory to God, the gospel to the world, and also to help you grow spiritually. That's the point of the church. And when you are spiritually healthy, all the other parts of your life are affected as well. You may not know that, but we're really not the sorts of people that can compartmentalize every part of us. We're very complex and integrated as people. And your spiritual life is as important as your emotional life or your physical life. And your psychological well being, all these things are all tied together. And it's important for us to recognize just as those people were 2,000 years ago and we are today, we are shaped by the community that we're a part of. Human beings are shaped by the communities that they are a part of. And so this. This book that we study here, this this glimpse into this church, it's more than just an old book or something that's outdated. It's something that's very relevant to us now. And to some degree, for good and for bad, we are shaped by our environments. You might not know this about me, but I lived six years of my life in Nashville, Tennessee, middle school and high school. So I went to high school at Stratford Comprehensive High School in Nashville, Tennessee, Now, Stratford um, was located in kind of a middle class, lower middle class neighborhood in Nashville. And if you're familiar with that area, which many of you are not, it's in East Nashville. And when I was there, back in those days, my high school days, East Nashville was kind of the the part of town, the part of Nashville that you didn't necessarily want to go into. (laughs) East Nashville was kind of the place that was referred to as the hood, or that side of the river, you know. Um, That's what East Nashville was. And and in my high school... Back in the South especially, um, and some of you are old enough to remember some of this, but way back when, you go back into the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s and the segregation that was happening in, in schools where the, the white kids and the black kids couldn't go to the, the, the same schools. And back in those days, guys, for many of you who have Hispanic connections, there weren't a whole lot of Hispanics in these areas at all. It was very black and very white, and that was it. And there were white schools and there were black schools. And then following that, after that, of of the desegregation, which you also had was a lot of integrated schools where they would specifically take kids and bus them from the white neighborhoods into the black neighborhoods and the black neighborhoods into the white neighborhoods to try to help push along this ability to blend schools. All right. And so my high school that I went to was 51% black. And many of the kids in my high school came from, a housing project there in East Nashville, right off in Shelby Avenue, the Shelby Bottoms and the, the South 8th um, uh, housing projects. All right. And if you're not familiar with housing projects, because we don't really have those around here in this area, those are apartment buildings that are set up by the welfare system um, to provide assistance, uh, assistance and low-income housing to um, many of the people that survive on welfare. right, and so many of the kids that I went to school with, friends of mine, teammates of mine in sports, they came from these housing projects, from this part of town. That was the community that they grew up in. That's what was there. Now, the the difficulty of of growing up in the projects, of that side of of the, 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 the tracks, so to speak, was that that community... As you guys know from the movies or TV, if you weren't raised in that area, it was known that that community was known for things like alcoholism, drug abuse, gang violence. Those a lot of times were the hot spots for that. Now, it wasn't all that way. There were a few bright spots in that and and a few ways out for many of these kids. But for many of these kids, this is the places that they were raised. This is the place that their parents were raised. Their, their cousins were there, their aunties and uncles, and it was, a, it was, this is how we live, and this is how we'll always live. And for very few of them would actually make it out of these projects, and there were certain ways that it would happen. In, in my community, basketball was one way out. Football also, those are the two primary sports. Then also there'd be other things like music. Sometimes there'd be arts and a super talented kid might somehow make his way out of the, of the projects. Church also provided an escape for, from that for many people. And for many people in the, those communities, strong church communities in this area. And for, for some of them, it wasn't down the, the dark path of the drugs and alcohol and all of that mess. It, they would have a strong sense of community. And of, hey, this is, we're from here, we're for here, and they would, they would grow out of it in that way. But many of my friends, my teammates, never could grow beyond the pitfalls of their community. And so for a lot of people, as we're talking about being shaped by the community that you're around, a lot of those kids, those students, they stayed stuck in there. In fact, a lot of my friends never reached their 30th birthday that's how these kind of communities would be impacted. And sadly, the same thing can happen in spiritual communities. All right? Growth and opportunity in some spiritual communities that are not healthy and don't have a a, a, uh, productive way forward, growth and opportunity can get stunted. Or even worse, people can be mistreated and taken advantage of. And some never recover from it. You may have met people or talked to people that said, oh, yeah, I went to church way back when. Or I, you know, I knew a, a pastor or I dealt with some of these things. But they've got, like, spiritual abuse that they experienced. And, and parts of their lives that were, were just damaged and destroyed by the church community. That's not how it's supposed to be. But that happens. And some don't recover. In fact, that was one of the most condemning things that Jesus, one of the most condemning things that Jesus said to the religious leaders of the day. I don't know if you remember that in Matthew, but Jesus talked to the Pharisees and he was tearing into them. He said, one of the biggest problems that I have with you is you're supposed to be the people that are helping people move into the kingdom of God. And instead, what you've done is you've shut and locked the door. You don't even go in yourselves, but you don't let anybody else come in that wants to come in. That's not what is supposed to happen in a church community. And so it's important that we stay diligent and aware of the shared spiritual health of our church. Will we ever be perfect as a church? No, never. But we can continue to grow in healthy ways. Now, as we we get into this, Paul gives this forward-thinking vision to the church at Philippi. He's going to talk to them and says, he's going to talk about who they can become and what they can do and where they can go. And I think it's inspiring. In fact, I think that if, if all churches function the way that he's going to describe here for us, we would watch the church expand continually. And, and I don't know if you, if you know this, but in the United States of America right now, churches in general are on the decline. There's lots of people that are, are leaving churches And they're leaving churches for all sorts of different reasons. But many of the reasons is because the churches that they've been a part of are not healthy and they're not moving forward. Instead, they're just drying up and dying. But even if a vision is inspiring like the one is that Paul gives for the church, it doesn't mean that it's easy. And what we're going to see here today is a call to focus on the ultimate example, the name above all names. And really what he's going to give us is a vision for a Christian life aimed toward the glory of God. All right, so let's read it here together in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Are you ready? You comfortable? You're awake? Okay, here we go. Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. He says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ Let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others and have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form Man. So this, this passage, we'll walk through these verses now. This passage begins with this kind of implicit statement. Here's what he says. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, which of course there is, there is encouragement in Christ. If there's any comfort from love, which there is, we're comforted with love. If there's any participation in the spirit, which there is, any affection and sympathy, the answer is yes, 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 yes. If so... Then he says, then become the people, be the church that God is leading you to become. And and he goes on there and he says, the church, the people of God should be unified in love with the mind of Christ. That's who we're supposed to be. That's what we're supposed to look like. We're supposed to be unified in love with the mind of Christ. That's what a church should be like. When people come into a church, they should be like, those people love each other. They're bound together by love. And not only that, they have a different way of seeing things, a different way of viewing the world. They have a mind of, it's like a godly mind, the mind of Christ. This is who we're called to be. Now that sounds great. But in order to live that way, you and me, we people, we humans, we have to be changed people. That's the only way you can actually live unified in love and walking with the mind of Christ. It doesn't come naturally to us. That might seem all nice and good. Yeah, that sounds like a nice church. But, but it's not, it's not uh, easy to do, but it's the only way. And the reason that it's, it's so hard for us is because that command that he tells us here, he says, do this, have this mind, have this love, be in full accord of one mind. Don't do things from selfish ambition or conceit. Um, the reason it's so hard is because that command is the opposite for the recipe for success in our world. It's the opposite. This isn't how we naturally function as humans. Our world, he says, you know, do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but our world calls us to selfish ambition and conceit. It just relabels it. Selfish ambition, we call that being success-driven. Conceit, we just say, oh, that's just, they have pride in their work. And we exalt those things. We're like, yeah, they're success-driven. They've got pride in their work. And, And when he says, you know, count others as more significant than yourselves, well, we want to be known as significant. We don't want other people to be significant. We want to be significant. We want to be people of great influence. Guys, that's the whole foundation for the problem that we have in social media in our world right now. It's we want to have influence. And we want to have this crowd of people that follow us in influence. The problem is we think it's a crowd. It's not a crowd. It's actually a mob. <laughs> and those people are ready to turn on you at any moment. And the more influence you have, it's just a bigger mob that's ready to attack you at any moment. That's what's, what's taking place. But, but people are dr- driven by that and they're chasing that. We're willing to look after other people's interests, as he says there, but only once all of our interests have been taken care of first i'll take care of me and if i got a little left over okay i can do good stuff for others and in fact this is how we even progress in our society servants aren't admired in our in our world masters are the ones that we admire right nobody goes to grad school to go get a servants degree <laughs> We go to grad school to get a master's degree. That makes us important. That makes us good. That puts us higher up on the pay scale because it's not our, our natural tendency to choose to be last in line. We could go into the, the you know, kindergarten class in here right now and tell them to line up. You know how many kids are like, oh, you before me, I'll, I'll be glad to, I'll, go, I'll wait to last, I'll go to the end, right? And it, it, that isn't a kindergarten only problem. <laughs> I mean, gosh, you guys may have just heard about this road rage incident that just happened right over here in Olympic Parkway, uh, you know, last week, right? Why? I want to be first. I want to get in line. You're not going fast enough, whatever it is. And people get out of cars and have a fight and then shoot one another, you know? I mean, we want to be first and we don't want others to influence, you know, get out in our way. We always want to be first. But Jesus shows up on the scene And he changes the whole paradigm. He says, I know that's how you naturally are, your people. But this isn't the way it's going to be in my kingdom. And this was one of the hardest lessons for the 12 disciples to learn. And it's still one of the hardest lessons for disciples in 2022 to learn. Jesus in Matthew uh, chapter 20, verse 25 to 28, he said this to his disciples. It says, but Jesus called them to him. And said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, that's everybody who wasn't a Jew, it was the, the, the world, basically, the rulers of the world. They lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man, this is another name for Jesus himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Are you picking that up? Do you see what he's saying? He says, this isn't the way. I know that's how it is in the world, but this isn't the way it's going to be with you guys. Um, There's another important illustration to look at. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles over to John 13. John 13 if you will, John 13, we're going to pick up in verse 3. It's, it's kind of a long passage, so I'm not putting it on the screen for you. You've got to follow along. Because this is another example of, of this way of living that Jesus gave to his disciples and to us. And in John 13, starting in verse 3, it says this. Jesus, knowing that he, the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And he laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus came and humbled himself to serve and to love us. And he calls us to live the same way. I think it's appropriate that we look at this verse on Mother's Day. (laughs) Because I know the mother in my house and the mother of the house that I grew up in does a lot of service for the other people in their house. And it's like Jesus. This is what happens. This is what we are called to. Now, when we see that and we see that Jesus did what he did and he calls us to live the same way, it seems impossible But what does the Bible also tell us? With God, nothing's impossible. And when you think about what it means to be a servant and to change your way of of life, it seems really hard. But that's what we're called to. So how do we do it? How can we defy the gravity of our humanity? I'm gonna give you three ways today, all right? Three ways and we'll be done. All right, and it's gonna start with what we see here in verse five in Philippians 2, which talks about a new mind. If you want to become a servant that Jesus has called you to become, if you want to love others in a sacrificial way, the way Jesus did, the first thing you have to have is a new mind. That's what it says right there in verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We have been given as Christians a new mind in Christ. And What I mean by that, I mean, it's not an actual brain transplant, right? The new mind that he's describing is a new set of priorities, a new way of viewing the world, a new way of life. And to be honest, this kind of stuff sounds ridiculous to a non-believer. The Bible tells us that that's how they're going to see it. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 14 to 16, it says, the natural person, the person that hasn't been awakened yet spiritually, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. That's foolishness. It's ridiculous. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But listen, but we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Now, we don't know why Jesus did it this way. Paul's describing Jesus coming and sacrificing himself and humbling himself. You know, this is the passage that we're here in Philippians. I don't know why he did it that way. Why didn't Jesus just show up in power and glory the first time? You know, instead, he came as a servant. Instead of appearing on the scene as this general with an army full of angels. Instead, Jesus came as a simple human. Instead of just showing up on earth and destroying his opposition, he allowed them to crush him. But as it says there in 1 first, in, in first Corinthians, you know, who are we to try and question God? <laughs> I don't know why he did it that way, but he did. So, the, But the first thing that we have to have then is that mind of Christ. The, the second thing is we see in verse 6. Which says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not e- count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Jesus uh, there, uh, he's described as, as the one in the form of God in verse 6. Now, that doesn't just mean that he, he kind of resembled God. all right? When it says, oh, he's like the form of God. It doesn't mean he, was, he just resembled God or had some like, family features you know you, you see the kid of, uh, of of somebody and you're like oh i can see you know the nose you got the nose that your dad has you got you know the ears oh when you laugh i see the same smile that your mom has or it's not that's not what it's describing here this this word the greek word morphe the form it wasn't just, oh, he has these features or he has a godly attitude or he kind of resembles somebody that we would think of being godlike. No. When it says he's in the form of God, it means that he was the nature and character of God. He was and is God. It's described this way in John chapter 1, which says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And then on in verse 14, it says, and the word, because if you're wondering, well, who is the word? He tells us, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. This is written by the apostle John who saw Jesus face to face. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus said it blatantly in John 10, 30, when he said to the people, I and the father are one. This is important for you to understand. Jesus just wasn't, wasn't just a good man. Jesus was God. In Christian theology, we describe God as one. One God in three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. It's what we call the Trinity, if you've heard that word before. What I need you to understand is Jesus didn't start as a man and grow into God. That's not how it worked. He always has been God. A co-equal and co-eternal member of the Trinity. And despite what some cults claim, no human being becomes a God. It's not how it works. Jesus is, was, and always will be God. And in verse 7 and 8, it tells us, though, because this is where it gets even more confusing, he's like, all right, he is God. It says there, it says, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form not of God, but of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even though he is fully God, this tells us that Jesus emptied himself. This is gonna hurt your brains a little, okay? This is astonishing. God who was there before all creation, before all time, God comes as he is to the earth, to his own creation, but then empties himself of his godness to some degree. At the same time, he's fully man and fully God. Does that seem like a bit of a paradox or a conundrum? Yes, it does. (laughs) Are you going to be able to understand that? No, you're not. (laughs) He emptied himself, it tells us. It's the creator coming to his creation, divesting himself of his glory and being born as a human. And he did it for us. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he was full of God, full of himself, full being himself. Yet for your sake, he became poor. He emptied himself of everything so that you by his poverty might become rich and Jesus led the way for us and invites us to follow him it's his service and his sacrifice that's our motive for change so this is what he gives us here here's the two of those things we have the mind of Christ that perspective that he had but we also have Jesus's example to follow he laid the glory of his godness aside and calls us simply to lay our selfishness aside, to humble ourselves, to serve and to love others. And then the third thing that he gives us here in this passage, so a new mind, a perfect example, and now a future hope. That's what we see in the last verses, in verses 9 to 11. Here's what it says. It says, therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the thing that we know about this emptiness it wasn't permanent. All right, God came in the form of Jesus and he emptied himself, but it wasn't permanent. After his death on the cross, Jesus was resurrected and has been exalted in glory, becoming the name above every other name. And one day, the Bible tells us, it tells us here in other places, one day everyone will acknowledge that truth. Every believer, every non-believer, every Christian, every Hindu, every Muslim, every atheist, every agnostic, you name it, On one day, every single human being that has lived and has ever lived and ever will live will bow their knee and declare there's one name above every other name. It says this in Romans 14, 10 to 12. It says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. The Apostle John, in seeing a vision of the end in in the book of Revelation, says this in in Revelation 5.13, and he says, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. We have a future hope. And as we aim ourselves to follow after Jesus, what is that hope? We're planning to be with him for eternity. That's our hope for the future. Every knee will one day bow before the name above all names. Some will bow before God in worship. Others will bow before God in defeat. But at that point, everyone will say, wow, there is one true God. This is who he is. And Jesus told us that he would go and prepare a place for those who loved him and chose to follow him. A place with no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more death. A place of perfect harmony between people and a perfect relationship with God. All things made new and made right once and for all. We as his people and he as our glorious God. And this is what you're invited to be a part of. This is what Paul's telling this church. This is why he's saying this. He's saying, guys, as you're moving forward, we've talked about partnering with the gospel. Last week, we talked about advancing the gospel. He says, as you're doing all this, make sure that your focus is still on the name above all names. There's something that we're aiming for. There's something that we're part of and called to be a part of that is bigger and better and greater than this earth and this life. There's something more. There's something beyond what we can see and taste and touch and smell. That's what you're invited to be a part of. That's the new life that we as Christians are pursuing. Now, can you see how when you have that perspective, it changes the way you live your life? Some of these other things that are hard for us to do, to sacrifice our wants to love other people, to give instead of always wanting to take, to being willing to help those who are are beaten down, these kinds of things, it changes. Because you realize, whoa, I'm trying to do what Jesus did on this earth. I'm being the hands and feet of Jesus. I'm encouraging those who need encouragement. I'm loving those who are needing love. I'm comforting those who are in sorrow. I'm doing these things because he's loved me. And I know that I have a future with him. And he wants all of these other people to be invited in it. So as we finish here today, as we respond, ask yourself this. As we spend, we're going to spend some time in responding in worship, i go going to invite the, the band back up. You guys can come back up here. And as we do this, as we just spend some time um, singing these songs, praying, let me ask you this ask yourself this. Is this the mindset, first, that I'm living from? Are you one that is living with the mind of Christ? Or is your mind more tied up on yourself? Secondly, am I looking to his example? Or am I looking to a different example? What's my example? And then third, is my hope in the future kingdom of heaven or is my hope in the present kingdom of earth? Ask yourself those questions. And if you find yourself in the wrong place on any of those questions, if you're like, actually, yes, I've been trying to look to Jesus as, as an example, but I'm really hoping that things go great here on this earth and that's where I want to put all my, all my eggs in this basket. Well, if, if that's where you find yourself then bow your heart before the name above all names. Repent and reaim your life. Because this is what we're called to. And this is who we are as the church and as the people of God. Let's pray. Father God, I do thank you for your word here today. And I know that uh, sometimes it's hard to process all that you've called us to. We, we can get so distracted with so many things in our lives, with busyness, with financial strains, with relational conflict, with illness and sickness. There's so many things that get in our way, Lord. And, and I just pray today, God, I pray today that you would allow us to take a few moments to silence all the noise in our lives. And as we do that, Lord, that we would be able to to see you. God, I pray that you would give every one of us here today a vision of Jesus. That we would be able to see you in your glory and in your power and in your goodness. God, that we would have that vision and understanding of you so that it it would reshape us and it would change us. Lord, we want you to make us the people that you designed us to be. And we confess, Lord, we are broken. And we confess that we get off track. And we confess our sins before you here today, Lord, and just pray that you would heal us, that you would refocus us, that you would cleanse us. If there are any here today that they know that they've been living in sin, Maybe it's this week. Maybe it's today. Maybe it's this year. Maybe there's something in their heart that they still have not cleared up with you. Lord, I pray that today that you would invite us to come near to you, that the blood of Jesus would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, that you would give us that new mind, that you would awake our souls, that that spiritual being would come alive within us. And Lord, that we would be able to walk in that way and we would be able to move from that place. And God, we recognize that that is a work that's beyond us. We can't stir ourselves up into some religious frenzy to see you. We can't work really hard to earn your love. But God, it's by your grace and by your goodness that you come to us and you manifest yourself in, in these ways to us. And so Lord, we open our hearts, we open our minds, we open our souls to you today and just ask God that you would shape us, you would change us, you would transform us for your glory, for your honor and for our fulfillment. We love you and we thank you here today in your name.